All right, Revelation 19, and uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 6. Verse 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. I want to just speak on the topic this morning of preparing ourselves for the king preparing ourselves for the king in this passage of scripture i mean the message is very simple that there is one day coming a marriage supper and there are going to be a there is going to be a great multitude that will be present at that marriage supper but the point i really want to focus on this morning is that this bride has made herself ready. There is a call to prepare ourselves, to make ourselves ready. And I remember several years ago, I had the distinct privilege to be able to go to a nation that was in crisis. In fact, it was a very dangerous place. Westerners were being kidnapped, and I really didn't understand the, the full significance of the peril that we were engaging in, but flying from Toronto, Canada to this city in, in Nigeria, I ended up uh, having a conversation with a man from Nigeria, and he said to me, where are you going? I said, well, we're going to a place in Delta State where uh, we're going to preach the gospel. And he said, that's the region that's in crisis. That's the region that is really under martial law. And it's very dangerous for Westerners to go there. And he looked at me and he said, Sir, you are a brave man. And when someone from the country tells you that you're brave, he said, I wouldn't go there myself. And I said, Oh, I don't know if I'm a brave man or a foolish man. And I said, Lord, I pray this is your will. If not, turn the plane around. I don't know. But ultimately, we went there. And as we drove into this particular city, uh, we saw soldiers just, just dug in. We saw snipers on rooftops. There were no cars on the streets. It was just desolate. And then we pulled up into what was supposedly a hotel. It was more like a military compound, which had walls, you know, like 10 meters high and went inside and there were armed guards inside and, and outside. And here we are in this place and we're looking around and we don't see any Westerners. At the airport, we saw some and, and we, we thought to ourselves, now, who are these guys? Well, we found out that they worked for the multinational oil companies. And the conflict was over the fact that the oil companies were coming in and taking the land from the people and, and exploiting the oil and the people, the local residents, were really not benefiting from that at all. They continued to live in poverty. And the way that they reacted to that to try to have some form of justice was a, a local militia group was raised up who at times would, you know, blow things up, make noise, or kidnap people. And so I spoke with the pastor who had invited us, and I asked him, I said, hey, this looks like a really dangerous place. He said, you're safe. He said, we have put your photo all over the region and that you're here to preach the gospel. They know who you are. They won't kidnap you at all. I said, well, praise God. And I said, I just pray they don't mistake me for someone who works for one of these oil companies. 
And uh, it ended up that we went into this region, a village actually, right on the, on the, on the Niger River and the delta there. And we saw thousands and thousands of people come in a small village called Okwagbi. And God moved so powerfully, thousands came to Christ. One night we had over 50,000 people show up. And uh, we saw miracles and signs and wonders, and it was just absolutely amazing. But I attribute the success to the crusade, first and foremost, you know, they call it a crusade, it's like preaching open air, to um, obviously first and foremost to the Lord and His grace and the Holy Spirit, but we also had favor from man. And the Bible says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. How many know that we need, first and foremost, favor with God, right? But when we have favor with God, there are people that we will also find favor with. And what had ended up happening is we were advised that in this region where you're going, there is a local king, they call him an Olu, and he actually needs to be approached, and you really need to secure his blessing in order to see your ministry prosper in that region. So we were advised how to approach the king. We were to come bearing gifts, and we were to come and humble ourselves and honor this king and say to him, sir, we deeply desire your blessing upon our endeavor. He himself was a Christian, is a Christian, and he did in turn give us his blessing. And he said, what I will do is I will send the word throughout my kingdom that all of the people should come and attend your meetings. And because of his blessing and his favor, we were able to have a great impact in that region. Well, you know, the Bible tells us that we have a king who is the greatest king. He is so much more profound and, and, and just powerful than any earthly, you know, king or, or um, you know, person of favor. And, and he is a great king. And he's, he's greater than any earthly ruler or dignitary. And he's worthy of even greater honor and respect. And the Bible teaches us when we approach this king, we are to come before him bearing gifts. In Deuteronomy 16, 16 and 17, it says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. Now, this king that we approached in the Niger Delta did not need our gifts. He was quite a wealthy man himself. But etiquette demanded the presentation of a gift as a gesture of honor and respect. My point is this. When we apply this to the kingdom of God, there is a transferable principle here. And that principle is simply this. How we approach a king determines the access we are granted, and therefore what we receive from him. So many of us flippantly approach God. But the Bible says that we are to prepare ourselves. Deuter I'm sorry, Proverbs 18, 16 says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. A lot of times we think that means that, you know, your spiritual gifts will promote you because people will see that. But that's actually not what he's talking about here. The context of this literally, and, and the NIV puts it this way, is that when you give a gift, it will open the way and usher you as the giver into the presence of great people. Just as the king in Nigeria received us and we were able to approach him 
and he granted us access to his kingdom. This is true as it relates to the Lord. He is a great king, and he requires that we worship him in a way that honors him. The Bible says in Psalm 96, 7 through 9, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord and the beauty of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now, in the new covenant, we don't give animal sacrifices. We don't present grain offerings. Our worship, which is still to be worthy of the one that we are approaching, requires a sacrifice, and we are to come before him with something in our hands. We're not to come before God empty-handed. The Bible says this is a principle that is true even in the New Testament. And I love the writings of Paul, particularly in Romans, where he talks about what God has done for us in the first 11 chapters. It's amazing. You know, in 9 through 11, he talks about God's plan for Israel. But up until the end of the 8th chapter, he's talking about all that God has given us access to because of the work of Jesus Christ and his ministry. And then in chapter 12, he says, okay, in light of God's great mercies, in view of all that he has afforded us, we have a, we have a response, we have an obligation. And he's very clear, he says, that we should be coming before him with an offering. We are to surrender ourselves to God to be his sacred living sacrifices. And we are to live before him in a way that it delights his heart. And this is genuine worship. You know the chapter, you know the verse, it's Romans 12 verse one, which is very clear that we, by the mercies of God, are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship. This is what God requires of us, that we come before him. And I love what one translation says. It says, live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart. Wow. Live in holiness and experience all that delights his heart. Do you know that God's heart finds delight in his children? That we can approach him in a way that this truly delights his heart. We become living sacrifices and we're holy and acceptable to God and it becomes a form of spiritual worship. There are things that delight God's heart. There is a right way to approach God and there is a wrong way to approach God. We recognize this pattern in the Old Testament, right? In the very beginning, Cain and Abel both approached God. But one sacrifice was accepted and the other was rejected. And the same is true today. There are people that seemingly approach God and it's just like nothing happens. The door doesn't open. It seems that the heavens are brass. There's no favor. There's no access. Why is it that it seems that God is not answering me? Yet other people walk in extraordinary favor. God seems to open doors for them. He uses them, he blesses them in different ways. And as we look at this more closely, I believe that we will see that there is clearly a mandate that God has given to us as his people. See, sometimes we've, we've wrongly defined grace. We say, well, grace is, is God's unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to earn or merit his favor, his grace upon your life. But is that really what the Bible teaches? Is that truly what the scripture teaches? Of course we know that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, it's nothing we can do. It's all that Jesus did at the cross. But yet the scripture tells us in Luke chapter 2, 52, that when Jesus was on the earth as a man, that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I've already mentioned this verse. That word favor is the same Greek word for grace. He increased in grace. He increased in grace. 
2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can grow in the favor, if you want to use that as a synonym, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can grow in favor with God. Well, I love that. There are certain people that God just says, hey, they really catch my attention. There are certain individuals that God says, wow, when I see them, I respond to them. And this is something that the scripture clearly reveals to us. There is a place and there is a, a place where we position ourselves and posture us ourselves in such a way that God looks at us and he goes, wow, that person really has my attention. And so here's just a couple of scriptures to back up my point. Isaiah 66 verse two, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will look. Think about that, right? I mean, people walk by, people walk in, but God says, wow, look at that person. They capture my attention. There's something about them. I'm enamored with them. And so we read in 2 Chronicles 16:9. likewise, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's very, very interesting. It's saying that God's eyes are scanning the earth. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking. And the Bible says that when he finds a person, and literally in Hebrew it means that their heart is completely his, that he says, ah, I'm gonna strengthen that person. I'm gonna position that person. I'm gonna prosper that person. I'm gonna promote that person. I'm going to do something to benefit them because they have a heart for me. In fact, the very word which says, but this is the one to whom I will look, the one to whom I will look. And then it continues, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The word look here means to look intently, to regard with pleasure, favor or care. It means to cause one to behold, to consider, or to look. Wow. To cause one to behold, to consider, to look, to have regard, to have respect. Amazing. So God says, you cause me to behold. You evoke from me a desire to look to you, to see you. You stand out in the crowd. There's something different about that person. We know the story of how the prophet came to find a replacement for King Saul. And as he came and he looked and he saw all of Jesse's sons, he said, well, that's this one, no, 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 that's not the one. And, and Jesse's like, what about this one? No, 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 that's not the one. And then he went through the whole group of them, the whole lot, and he's like, no, it's not that person. And then all of a sudden, well, is there, do you have another son? Well, I do. His name is David. You know, he's a youth. He's just out with the sheep. He smells like sheep. He's nothing, right? And he said, bring the lad here. Bring him here. So he brings David in, and Samuel says, that's him. That's the one. That's the one that stands out. That's the one that is distinct. And the reason for that, we read later on in the book of Acts, that it's because David, son of Jesse, was one who had a heart after God. There's something about David that made him different. And I've learned throughout the years that I can actually attract the favor of God upon my life. And it's not that it's because of my righteousness, no, but it's because of his righteousness and I honor who he is and I honor what he can do. Because the Bible says that when we come before God, we've got to worship him in the beauty of holiness. We have to honor him. We have to pay homage to him. We have to respect him for who he is. We don't just flippantly come before him. Now think about this. In life, we prepare ourselves in so many ways. We prepare our physical appearance, right? We prepare for a job interview. We prepare for marriage. We prepare to become parents. We prepare academically. But what about preparing ourselves for God? How are we making ourselves ready for his presence? It says here that at this marriage supper of the Lamb, there is the, the people, they cried out, the angels cried out and said, look, the, the bride has made herself ready. 
The bride has prepared herself. She's ready. And this speaks of the remnant of the true people of God who have made themselves ready. There is a place in the kingdom for beautifying yourself before God. Hello. And, and you know what I mean? Look, man, that may sound feminine. I get it. But the point is, there's still something you can do. Put some cologne on at least, all right? I mean, just smell nice at least, okay? But the point I'm trying to make here is that there is a place and a responsibility that we have to prepare ourselves for him. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is of this disciple in John's gospel who's called the one whom Jesus loves. The one whom Jesus loves. Now think about that. Isn't that going to cause, uh, that really, that, that's controversial. Think about it. Right, imagine if you said to your kids, oh yeah, that's the one whom I love, and you just chose one and point, right? I mean, okay, so he's got 12, but this is the one whom Jesus loves. He's the father's favorite. Hello? Okay, so what's happening here is, is we, we wonder who is this disciple whom Jesus loves. In fact, seven times in the Gospel of John he's mentioned. Seven times. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Interestingly, it was John. And John wrote it. Hey, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, doesn't he sound arrogant? And, and what happens, of course, is he's like, he walked in a revelation of the intimacy of the Father. Remember James and John, sons of thunder. But they came to a place where they recognized the love of the Father. He writes 1 John, that epistle, that letter, is all about knowing the love of the Father, knowing God's love and how much God loves us. But there's something very profound in this story, something that I, I observed as I was, I was reading this. And so what we see right here is actually in the 21st chapter of John's Gospel, the last time the disciple whom Jesus loves is mentioned, it is specifically stated that he's the one who put his head or who leaned on Jesus at the supper on the night he was betrayed at the Passover. And it's interesting that the writer documents those details. How many know that the devil is not in the details, God is in the details? And so what ends up taking place is he's saying, look at this guy. He's a disciple whom Jesus loves. Isn't it interesting that he's seated beside Jesus? I mean, he's not at the end. Like, you know, it wasn't like Leonardo da Vinci anyways, like the, the, the practice, like you see the pictures. But ultimately, what we see here is Jesus as this disciple named John who's literally sitting next to him. And he has his head on Jesus' chest. Now think about that. Hearing the heartbeat of the Son of God. And it's such an interesting thing that you could get that close to Jesus that you can feel his heart beat. That's true for you and me today. That's true for us today that we can get so close to him that we can know his heart. We can know what pleases him. We can experience the knowledge of what attracts him. And think about that scripture in Psalm 37 verse four. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let me say what it does not mean, first of all. It does not mean if you're a good person, God will give you your wish list. It's not what it's saying. But it's saying if you delight yourself in the Lord, not in what he can do for you, but in him as a person. If you delight yourself in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. And the idea here is that your desires will change that he will give you his designs and that he will do a heart transplant where your heart beats because you're so close to him that you know what makes his heart beat. It's a place of intimacy. 
And so this one, the disciple whom Jesus loves, is favored because of intimacy. He was very intentional in positioning himself close to Jesus. I want to get as close to him as I can get. I want to hear his heartbeat. I want to, I want to feel his breath. I want, to, I want to smell him. I want to know what pleases him and honors him. I want to get so close to him. I don't want to worship him from afar. I don't want to say, well, hey, I want to, I want to be saved, but, you know, I want to stay as far away from him as possible because, you know what, I've got to live a life. I've got things to do. No, no, no. This generation today is abandoning all of that because it's unjustifiable and it literally causes you to miss out on what God wants to do. He's calling us to a place of great intimacy. He's calling us to a place where we prepare ourselves and we capture his attention. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, speaks of the fact that we have actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he speaks of the fact that how he had literally betrothed the church to Christ as a chaste virgin is what it says. I betrothed you to Christ as a chaste virgin. And the ancient Hebrew practice, the, the idea is this, that you, the person that you would be married to, you were betrothed to that person. It was a legally binding process. It was something, it was a contract. And you were obligated to marry that person. But for about one year, there was a period of testing. And during that one year, what happened is you proved yourself you were tested, you, your affection, your devotion, your purity, your commitment was tested. And if for some reason you breached that, if you were unfaithful, then even though you weren't married, that particular betrothal would, be, it would result in a termination. And it's all about that. When you read what God is saying in these days, He's looking for a bride that has made herself ready. Are we making ourselves ready for him? Are there things that we know that offend him, that grieve him, but yet we still do it? I'm telling you, the scripture speaks in several places in the New Testament that we can grieve Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, we can quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. Acts 7, 51 says you can resist the Holy Spirit in your life, his working, his dealings. And then in Hebrews 10, 29, it says that we can do despite unto the Spirit of grace. He's a gentleman. He's a jealous lover. He wants to know you. And he's saying no other partners, no other relationships, no other loves. I want to know you. I want you to have eyes only for me. I only have eyes for you. And when he sees our devotion and our affection, when we move into that place where we walk before him in a way that truly shows that our heart is fully his, something takes place in the natural. You see, there's some strong verses not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament about this. In James chapter four, verse five, it says, or do you, let, let's start at verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. What we see here is a church that had fallen into the spirit of the age, the world. 
They didn't have eyes only for Jesus. They were not preparing themselves for the, wed for the wedding. And clearly, the writer says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these people had actually positioned themselves in a way that God was not happy with them. And there's a call to repentance. There's a call to singleness of heart. There's a call to surrender, to seek God, knowing ultimately that he yearns for relationship with us as a jealous lover. He said, you're mine, you belong to me. You don't belong to anyone else or anything else. I paid the price by my blood to reconcile you and bring you into relationship. So why is it that you're flirting with the things of the world? Give me your heart. I remember ministering in a church in America one time and we prayed for this one uh, young woman and she um, as we prayed for her she was baptized in the Holy Spirit she fell on the ground and she was down there for for quite a while and after when she came up she said I just had a vision and then when I was out in the spirit I had a vision and what I saw was my boyfriend and myself and an angel came and stood before us and he had a sword of fire and he was saying no 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 you belong to God you belong to God you belong to God and she said it was disturbing and as we spoke with her we said look we don't know this person but I can tell you this if they're causing your heart to turn away from the Lord if your zeal and your affection and your devotion for God is waning because they're distracting you and they're demanding what belongs to the Lord, then this is what God would be jealous over and he's warning you about that relationship. God is a jealous God. The Bible says you were bought at a price. You belong to him. All of your time, your, your devotion, your affection ultimately must be focused on Christ. I'm not saying you don't have responsibilities in life. Obviously, if you're married, if you have children, your job, that takes time. And there's a level of, of devotion or, or investment that you have to make in those things. But what I am saying is that there is something in the midst of all of that that we have this burning passion for him. I want to please you. I want to do what honors you. I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to cause you to say, oh, what you're doing right now is not compelling. It's not attractive to me. And when we look at the scriptures, we see this emulated by the life of Jesus himself. I, I, I can't believe the favor that Jesus walked in. Right, at least twice in the, in the Gospels, we hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well placed. Listen to him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. There's a place where we prepare ourselves in such a way that the Father looks at us and he says, I will use you, I will bless you, I will answer you. I will do things, amazing things in your life because your heart is mine. And guys, when I said earlier that grace has been something that we misinterpreted at times, what I mean by that is grace is not a license for sin. Grace is not a free-for-all. Oh, you're covered by grace. He loves you. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. But we can grow God so loved the world. Yeah. Even when we were rebellious, he still loves us. But favor is something different. Favor is something that we can grow in as we learn how to please him. Something different altogether. Grace is God 
empowering us to live a life that pleases him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that by grace, we learn to worship God acceptably. Grace enables us to worship God acceptably. Grace positions us before him. We walk in his grace, we receive his grace. His grace changes us. You, since you have no dominion over you, because you're not under law, you're under grace, Romans 6, 14. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, the grace of God that brings salvation, soteria, freedom from the harassment of an enemy, has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Teaches us to say no. To say no, the NIV says. No, I'm not going there. No, I'm not going to do that. No, that grieves him. That, that hurts his heart. I belong to him. I can't do that. I can't grieve him. To this one will I look. To this one will I look. Jesus is standing outside Lazarus' tomb. His friend Lazarus was dead. And Jesus lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I thank you that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, the only reason why I'm praying is for the unbelievers. I didn't need to pray. But Father, he says, I thank you that you have heard me. Lazarus is still in the grave, but he's saying in advance, you've heard me. And I thank you that you always hear me. You always hear me. Wow. Such assurance, such confidence that the Father hears me. When I pray, it happens. When I pray, it comes to pass. And I've been learning to walk in that in this season of my life the past few years where I pray, I expect that God's going to answer me. And if I don't see the answer come, then I examine myself. Is there something that I'm doing that's hindering your spirit? Is there something that you're trying to teach me that I need to make an adjustment in my life? Clearly, I'm talking about things that I know are God's will. But Jesus said, I thank you that you hear me and I thank you that you've, all, you've heard me and you always hear me. How is it that he knew he was always heard by the Father? Well, earlier on in the Gospel of John, he says this in chapter 8, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do those things that are pleasing to him. For I always do those things that are pleasing to him. Wow. John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's an amazing thing that we can walk before God in a place where we come before him, offering our lives as a living sacrifice. God, everything about me is yours. What I think, what I say, my passions, my desires, my will is surrendered to you. My resources are yours. It all belongs to you. God, I wanna, I wanna honor you, I wanna please you. And as we give ourselves, guys, see, see when Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now watch this, please. What he's saying is that of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, there was one that was unique and distinct. It's called the burnt offering. The burnt offering was the only sacrifice where the entire animal was consumed on the hearth. The entire animal was burned up and consumed. And the imagery that Paul is employing here, many scholars believe, is that he's saying that our bodies being offered as living sacrifice is the equivalent of that burnt offering. Because there is a word in Greek that speaks of your physical body, but the word he uses there is soma, which speaks more about your being. And he's saying that, that 
you are to offer your whole being to God. Bible says that we are to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. There is to be no God beside him. We're not to have idols. We're to worship him, but we make idols out of so many things. We look to things in the natural. We look to people. We look to the arm of flesh rather than to God. But when you come to the end of yourself, and when you recognize, even as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.9, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I love it when I come to a place where I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not strong enough. I don't know what to do. I don't have the resources. I don't have what it takes. Because at that point, at the end of myself, I'm at the beginning of God. And I'm able to see him do things that I've never seen before. And one of the reasons why miracles have waned in the church in the past couple of decades in particular is because we have put so much confidence and invested so much in what we have. We have money. We have buildings. We have people. We have all that we have need of, just like the Laodicean church. But we are rich, increased with goods in need of nothing, we think. But we're wretched, we're pitiful, we're poor, we're blind, we're naked. Because we don't have the favor of God. And God has been so merciful to us. But this is a season prophetically where the plumb line is laid and God's calling us to measure up. Will you measure up? Will you bring your life into alignment? Those things that grieve Holy Spirit, those things that just cause you to be maybe just, you know, average. Come on now. How many are sick and tired of being average, right? You know, they say in the military, second place is first loser. Yeah, first loser. I don't want to be average. I want to be extraordinary because of the Father's grace of my life. I was at a conference speaking years ago, and the session that I was uh, going to be sharing on was on the topic of the favor of God. And I wanted to you know, point to this illustration of this disciple John, the one whom Jesus loved, and emphasize the fact that he was so favored and loved by him because of his devotion, of his affection, and his, his proximity and his intimacy with Jesus positioned him to a place of effectiveness and influence and impact. I have found that when I walk before God in a place of humility, a place of brokenness, there's four things. Are you guys ready? I'm going to give it to you. This is no charge, all right? Okay. Are you ready? Okay, there's things. They all start with the letter H. This message is brought to you by the letter H. Are you ready? Number one, hunger. Hunger. Your hunger for God. Wow. Your hunger for God. Think about it. In the natural, if we have a child and that child loses its appetite and refuses to eat, what do we do? Immediate steps are taken to remedy the situation. This is bad. This child won't eat. I mean, we're not just talking about a couple of days. We, this is prolonged. This is protracted. And something has to happen. And so yet in many places when we see the same thing, lack of hunger among God's people, lack of hunger in the church, we just kind of say, well, yeah, that's the way it is. And then those who are really hungry for God, we look at them and we go, man, they are like out there. No, they're normal. They're hungry. Secondly, humility. I had a dream recently. I've never shared this publicly. It just happened. It wrecked me. I was ministering somewhere and I was with different leaders and I said something. 
And as soon as I said it, Holy Spirit just went. And he checked me. He corrected me. And it wasn't the words that I said, but it was the condition of my heart. And he said to me, you just made that statement in a spirit of pride, not humility. And as I realized it, I caught myself and I went, oh my gosh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. I want to be humble. Because I know he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. And I've seen pride. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of others. And it's a stench to God. Humility. Humility. It was just a dream, but I think it was a warning. No matter how successful you are, no matter how much God uses you, stay small. Stay close to him. Stay in his presence. Stay broken. Thirdly, holiness. Without holiness, no man will see God. With holiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall walk in that place of increased revelation and perception prophetically of who he is. Seeing God. Holiness. Holiness, keep your heart pure. God knows who we are, what people don't see. Men are more concerned about reputation. God is more concerned about character. Reputation is who people think you are. Character is who you really are. And then lastly, honor. Honor. Honor is so massive. Honor God, honor people. Honor leaders, but not just leaders. It has to come, re, be reciprocated, top, not just top down, but honor one another. Everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. Every person. No matter how messed up they are, no matter how broken they are, they're made in the image and likeness of God. How we treat people, the broken, the castaways, those who don't smell good, guys. Those who are just so messed up, how we treat them. Shows the heart of the Father. God is raising up a generation that gets what I'm saying. You take hold of it and run with it. Lord, I want to position myself. The bride has made herself ready. Jesus looks at you. Well done, my beloved. My bride, come away with me. Come away with me. The secret place. Guys, there's so much he wants to show us. He, he wants us. who he is to our culture lay it down the things that are distracting you the things that are vying for your devotion your time your commitment lay it down maybe some things we have to put away for a season when I came to the Lord he spoke to me. I was a musician. He spoke to me and he said, put it away. Put it away. Worship me. Walk with me. Put it away. Not saying that's for everyone, but I'm saying sometimes, for a season at least, we have to do those things. His bride has made herself ready. What a powerful passage of Scripture. What a powerful passage of Scripture. John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great 
multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals. One translation says, I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice one day, church, around his throne. And let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She's been given the finest linen to wear, pure white linen. The fine linen represents the righteous deeds of God's holy people. Guys, this world needs to encounter the Lord and the beauty of His holiness for who He is. The Lord needs a new generation to rise up. Some of you, you may have been in this, in the faith for years, but God's calling you to rise up afresh. Put off those old, soiled garments. Put off, the Bible says this, that man, the priest, could not approach God with woolen garments. Why? Because woolen garments made you perspire. It speaks of the works of man, the arm of the flesh, human effort. But linen is the righteousness of God. Some of you need to put off your woolen garments. The way you've been approaching God is based on, oh, I'm this, I do that, I'm religious, I'm, I'm good, I, I do all these things. But he, guys, it's not what it is. Do you love him? Do you honor him? Some of you have been coming before him empty-handed. Come on. He wants a sacrifice. He wants the offer. It's you. You're the living sacrifice. You are his bride. Esther made herself ready for the king. One year of treatments and preparation. One year. Yet we just come before God. We say things like God looks at our heart. Yeah, he does. That's the problem. Have we grown cold? Has it become routine? I don't want to be that person, that minister, that pastor who falls from my first love the older I get. Like I have done it all. I've preached thousands of sermons travel to the nations and it's just become routine oh more than ever I want to know him the one in whom my soul delights back to my first love keep it burning keep the fire keep the affection 